You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Welcome to Dig, a history podcast. Recently, I was on a research trip in Albany, New York, sifting my way through hundreds of records of men institutionalized at two prisons for the criminally insane in New York State, Matawan and Danamora. It was honestly one of the worst research trips I've ever been on. Um, I had had to jump through a million hoops to try to get access to these restricted records, and I was finding absolutely nothing. Really demoralizing. Then... I came across one file that caught my attention. It was about a young, deaf black man. And I'm not going to tell you his real name because those records are private. So we'll just call him Levi. Levi lived on a farm in the Hudson Valley region of New York State. According to his patient case file, he was incarcerated at the Matawan State Hospital because he murdered his white, quote unquote, master in 1870. A quick Google search, and let's face it, that's usually our first research step, right? Uh, A a quick Google search on Levi brought me to an index on deaf Americans maintained by Gallaudet University that claimed that Levi was an enslaved farm worker who killed his white master, David Hasbrook. I'm confused, but I see that you have anticipated that. (laughs) It is confusing. (laughs) Yeah. You can see why I was like, wait, what? Okay, so let's pause and unpack that for a second. In 1870, a young black man murdered his white, quote-unquote, master in New York State. How does that work? So by 1870, slavery hadn't existed in New York for decades and had been federally abolished for five years. What was going on on Daniel Hasbrook's farm? How could Levi and his other black companions be enslaved when slavery was illegal, not only in New York State, but in the United States? Well, Levi was born to a single black mother, perhaps the child of a prominent local white man. He was also born deaf and into real poverty. Unable to care for her son, Levi's mother placed him and his brother into the county poorhouse, an institution that provided clothing, food, and shelter for the community's indigent. But children posed a problem for the poorhouse. They weren't an orphanage and had no infrastructure for long-term care. There were no state or federal education laws that required children receive a public education, so there was no school for them to attend. That would have posed a problem anyway, right? Because they were both deaf. 
they needed to go somewhere. And so Levi, just like thousands and thousands of children all around the United States, was indentured out to a local laborer, ostensibly to learn a trade in exchange for his care, but more accurately, to provide free labor on this farm. An indenture was a contract, not signed or negotiated by the child, but by the state, that kept the child laborer in the position for a set number of years. So while he wasn't technically enslaved, Levi was providing uncompensated, unfree labor to Daniel Hasbrook and had been for many years. On this episode, we won't be talking about Levi's murder case and all of the many issues that it raised. For that, you will have to read my future article uh, to get the rest of that story. Um, But instead, we'll learn more about one of the things that made his murderous act possible. Today, we're talking about the history of poor relief and child welfare in the United States. I'm Sarah Hanley-Cousins. And I'm Marissa Rhodes. And we are your historians for this episode of Dig. We want to thank all of our Patreon supporters, and especially our fabulous Augur and Excavator-level patrons. Hannah, Lauren, Colin, Edward, Iris, Susan, Denise, Agnes, Jesse, Karen, Maria, and Audrey. We can't thank you enough. Listener, if you're not yet a patron of the show, it's easy. Just go to patreon.com backslash digpodcast to learn more. While today, you might be able to apply for something like unemployment, social security disability, or forms of temporary assistance, those forms of assistance were largely born out of 20th century legislative reforms like FDR's New Deal and Johnson's Great Society. But while previous forms of poor relief were very different from the ones that we're familiar with today, they had one major thing in common. They were tightly intertwined with social assumptions about poverty and morality. Early Americans, just like modern-day Americans, had complicated ideas about the causes of poverty and how to properly solve it. So in order to understand how a child like Levi was indentured out to perform labor for a local farmer, we first sort of have to understand the ways that 19th century Americans thought about poverty and how to address it. The American system of poor relief is founded on the English tradition dating to the 1601 Act for the Relief of the Poor, more commonly known as the Elizabethan Poor Law. This law, or more accurately, a collection of laws, formalized traditional practices of providing care for the poor in Great Britain. This law identified three different kinds of poor people. The first group was the impotent poor, people who were by their nature unable to take care of themselves, such as women, children, disabled people, and the elderly. Later, this group was more typically referred to as dependents. In other words, people who were dependent on the care and provision of a head of household, aka a white adult man. The second group was the able-bodied poor, men who were physically healthy but down on their luck. In England, the able-bodied poor were fit enough to be able to do some labor in workhouses where they might do menial, manual labor, like picking oakum or crushing animal bones for fertilizer. The third group was the paupers, 
Otherwise healthy, able-bodied people, typically men, who could work but wouldn't. Instead, the idea was that paupers lived off of poor relief, essentially trying to act like a dependent while actually being independent, at least according to the assumptions of society. To be accused of pauperism was hugely stigmatizing. It was a feminized, racialized term that suggested that a man was ineligible and incapable of manly independence and citizenship. Can I add one little fun fact? Absolutely. Um, one of the things about paupers is that, at least in the 18th century, because I've looked at so many poor relief um, documents right. of the 18th century, they tend to... Um, basically, a pauper is someone who is... Um, you know, persistently, um, chronically, right, unemployed and living off of poor relief. Like it's it's like a lifelong thing, and they'll usually call right. them a returning customer or something oh. <laughs> similar to that. Right. Um. Yeah. You know, like oh, the old, you know, the old. Uh, I don't know, Bill Jones, the return. You know, the infamous customer has returned. Right. Or whatever. Um. Yeah. Yeah. It's, and like. Even though today we wouldn't call somebody a pauper, like every you have you have all of you have heard of people talk about folks that use welfare or social security disability mm-hmm. or WIC or food stamps, like you name it mm-hmm. in these terms. Yeah. Right. Like the the 20th century version of this is the is like the welfare mom. Right. Mm-hmm. The um the what's like the welfare queen. Mm-hmm. Welfare right. Queen, yeah. Um. So this is deeply, deeply entrenched in the way that Americans think about impoverished people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, although I think the gender part of it is different because the welfare yes. queen thing oh. is all like, oh, a woman who just has babies. You know, it's I'm sure you'll get into it. Right. But, yeah. No, I, I mean, I think that that is a switch that happens in the 20th century that in in my research in the 19th century, it was men mm-hmm. It was understood that women couldn't be independent, right? They were dependents. And so it was men's responsibility to provide. And when they didn't, they were the ones that were accused of pauperism, Mm -hmm. right? It's not to say that women never were or whatever, but it was just much more of of a masculine sort of term. Whereas in the 20th century... I think because of, as you mentioned, the the difference of reproduction, Mm -hmm. um, it kind of switches. And thanks to Ronald Reagan and his general f***ery, right? Yep. (laughs) So anyway, okay. So the American colonists based their system, um, as Marissa said, of poor relief largely on the English precedent. Rhode Island, for instance, uh, just wrote into their own legal code that the Elizabethan poor law would also be their poor law. Like, they didn't actually copy it. They just were like, we're going to use the Elizabethan poor law. They were just like, see that thing. (laughs) Right, exactly. Uh, There were a few main features of the Elizabethan law that were copied into um, the American system. First, they assumed that poor relief was the responsibility of the community at large. In other words, we as a people are responsible for our poor. Second, they understood that this responsibility uh, was hyper-local, located usually in a single village or municipality funded by the taxpayers and facilitated by a group of local elders that typically labeled themselves as overseers of the poor. 
While this meant that the community cared for their own, it also meant that they would not care for anyone that they believed was not their own. And it was very common for the overseers of the poor to literally bring outsiders over town lines and drop them off to become someone else's problem. Third, they believed that first and foremost, responsibility for the indigent belonged to their kin. Anyone seeking public aid would be rejected if they had family members. There was a fourth precedent regarding children, but we're going to come back to that in a moment after we get a little more context for what poor relief looked like in 19th century America. Oh, man, I'm loving this. This is my bread and butter. (laughs) So (laughs) based on these principles, American towns and villages typically had four ways of dealing with the poor in early America. It's pretty well summed up by this quote from a report written by social reformer Thomas Hazard in 1851. Quote, first, by vendoing. I've never heard that before. I have. It's it's vendu is French and it just means sold. By, so by solding, by solding. Uh, first, by vendoing, auctioning, or selling to the lowest bidder. Second, by contracting for their maintenance with an individual or individuals through the agency of a committee or otherwise. Third, by placing all the poor in one asylum owned by the town. Or fourth, by placing all such in an asylum as are bereft of home and friends and administering of outdoor relief to such as have. End quote. (laughs) Um, To such as, obviously, to people who do have home and friends, obviously. Yeah. Right, right, right. It's a it's a very weird way of saying that. But yes, that's what it means. (laughs) Okay, so let's kind of pull that apart and try to make sense of it. First, there are two general categories of relief described here. Relief where people are being given work or other supports, but who are living in the community. And relief where people are brought in to live inside an institution. These were typically called outdoor relief and indoor relief. So outdoor meaning you were supported but lived in the community. Indoor relief, you lived in an institution of some kind. Hazard describes two kinds of outdoor relief, though there were others like, you know, providing free food, providing firewood, providing cash payments, although those were not super, you know, super common, at least in my experience. There there was, um, I know there was a lot of reluctance to give people cash. Um, So those were not as common. In the 18th century, cords of firewood was the most common. Right. Yeah. Food and firewood, I think, were were more common forms of outdoor relief than cash payments. Um, But Hazard um, says that first, um, there was this option to vendu, I guess, or auction off the poor to the lowest bidder. And that sounds very foreign and, you know, frankly, kind of horrible to our ears today. But it actually sort of reminds me of the practice in some states where agricultural labor is in very high demand. So when, uh, you know, where a farmer in need of day labor might drive to someplace like a Home Depot and pick up laborers willing to work for the best price, right? That's essentially what this form of poor relief was, with the exception that it's being required or facilitated by the local overseers of the poor. It's not just ad hoc, right? And the poor weren't necessarily being purchased to perform labor. Instead, the bidders were hoping to win the meager payments from the town to essentially take the care of the poor off of the town elders' hands. 
This was a pretty limited practice, mostly only practiced in very rural areas or small towns that didn't have other kinds of infrastructure to care for the poor. It was also pretty unpopular. Hazard commented that, quote, when stripped of all disguises, selling the poor to the lowest bidder is simply offering a reward for the most cruel and avaricious man that can be found to abuse them. The other kind of poor relief that Hazard described was one where people were contracted for the maintenance of the poor. This would be where a family or a couple would receive a contract from the town to provide care for the poor. So similar to auctioning, contracting was most common in rural areas or small towns. The last two options that Hazard describes where he refers to people coming in to live in the asylum were more common and were the systems that dominated poor relief throughout the 19th century, essentially the poorhouse system. There were a number of reasons why the poorhouse became the more common system than outdoor relief. One was just an increase in population. As towns and counties grew, so did the problem of the poor. Another significant reason was the market revolution. As the American economy shifted from an artisanal system to wage labor in the marketplace, traditional networks of community weakened, laborers were de-skilled, and people became more reliant on the whims of the market. When times were good and jobs were plenty, they could find work and keep themselves afloat. But when times were bad, employers tightened their belts by laying off workers, meaning that the ranks of the unemployed and indigent grew. In farming areas, the ranks of the poor could grow and contract with the growing and harvesting season. Lots of work in the spring, summer, and fall, and poverty in the winter. And as people had to leave their homes to work, they were no longer able to provide care for their dependents, such as children and elderly or disabled family members. Many jobless and impoverished people saw cities where there might be greater opportunity to find work as their best option, and they flooded into these urban areas. So all of these vulnerable and needy people increasingly turned to the poorhouse as a last resort. So as the impoverished and vulnerable population grew, communities saw poorhouses or indoor relief as the better option rather than ad hoc or sort of complicated outdoor relief. The move to the poorhouse also provided village and city elders to have greater control over those who utilized services for the poor. According to historian Michael Katz, quote, poorhouses appeared an ideal way to accomplish a broad array of economic, disciplinary, rehabilitative, and humanitarian objectives. The transition to indoor relief coincided with economic changes, but also with sweeping religious and social changes of the Second Great Awakening. Now, we have talked about the Second Great Awakening many, many times on this show, so I am not going to go back into huge detail here. Um, You know, see our extensive back catalog on many aspects of this revival. Um, But recall that that this um, period of religious revival came with the belief that perfecting society could help to bring about the second coming of Christ and a millennium of peace. It's called millennialism. So it created this huge incentive for religious-minded people to advocate for social reforms, such as ending poverty, encouraging the poor to be more industrious, and ending vice among the underclass. Poor houses then offered an opportunity to further all of those ends. What kind of impact do you think that this move to indoor relief had on wet nursing? <laughs> it's like literally what an entire chapter of my dissertation is about. 
You're making me excited because I haven't thought about this stuff for a long time. It is exciting. Poor relief is exciting stuff. But you know, it's really funny. When I started my dissertation, like the idea that I would have been like really like interested in like systems of poor relief, like that oh no that same awful. and then same. as i started doing research i was like oh man this is my yeah, shit <laughs> i know it's weird right like I, I would i didn't think that's where i would end up either and it i got pulled into there so right first poor houses were well actually it kind of makes sense because we're interested in like the experience of everyday people you know so in a way that kind right. of does make sense because we're not we don't we care less about like you know the kings and queens and presidents and congressmen and care more about ordinary folks right first poor houses were more cost effective they allowed town elders to have greater control over spending as well as centralizing spending um but also because they could be made so odious that they dissuaded people from taking advantage of them very cool trick there Poor houses were not posh, if you can imagine. They had strict rules against intemperate habits like drinking. They had rigid work requirements. And they offered Spartan lodgings. In this way, not only were they saving the town money, but they were actively reforming the poor into moral, industrious citizens. Residents were responsible for producing most of the food and other goods that kept the almshouse going. The almshouse in Salem, Massachusetts, for instance, produced 4,300 pounds of pork, 1,000 bushels of turnips, and 2,700 bushels of potatoes. In addition to cloth, barrels, brooms, and cabinet furniture, much of which could be sold to support the institution. This was understood almost as a kind of therapy that would reform paupers into upstanding members of society. Quote, the prohibition against alcohol and mandatory work will deter many intemperate wretches, explained Massachusetts Minister Charles Burroughs, and lazy vagrants from seeking admission to these walls and act as a stimulant on their industry and moral feelings, end quote. I should be clear, the turn toward the poorhouse didn't mean that outdoor relief disappeared. In New York State, for instance, outdoor relief continued to be fairly common, especially in the support of the elderly, who everyone seemed to agree shouldn't be forced to leave their homes. The poorhouse also represented an opportunity for the moral middle class to make an intervention into the lives of poor children, who they believed were being raised by immoral paupers. In 1824, New York's Secretary of State, John Yates, prepared a report for the New York State Legislature, later known as the influential Yates Report, that decried the poor treatment of impoverished children. Quote, the education and morals of the children of the paupers, except those in almshouses, are almost wholly neglected, Yates reported. They grow up in filth, idleness, ignorance, and disease, and many become early candidates for the prison or the grave, end quote. Moreover, their health was poor, and thus many died young. In this situation, reformers reasoned, children would simply grow up and recreate the current pauperism problem. In a young, growing country, rich with resources and with a burgeoning market economy, most middle-class reformers believed that young people could succeed if only they were properly taught and trained. Away from the negative influence of dysfunctional... Oh, (laughs) Away from the negative influences of dysfunctional, poor families and living in almshouses, John Yates argued that, quote, children's health and morals were alike improved and secured, and they received an education to fit them for future usefulness, end quote. 
So reformers began to create institutions specifically for impoverished, abandoned, and orphaned children designed to provide a kind of perfected version of a family structure. Many of these institutions structured children's days around both technical and traditional educations, though it's important to point out that this training often had the double effect of providing skills training while also economically benefiting the institution. Free labor. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the New York Colored Orphan Asylum, for instance, had their male students trained in the skill of shoemaking by repairing the shoes of their fellow orphans. The Shelter for Colored Orphans in Philadelphia had orphan girls sew clothing for the other children, which historian Crystal Webster says was, quote, a skill identified as a necessary educational pursuit that would prove girls as helpful to the family, end quote. I... I realize that we neglected to mention that the terms poorhouse and almshouse are interchangeable. They're just they're they sort of refer to the same thing. So I've used them kind of interchangeably here. And I just wanted to make sure that we acknowledge that in case you were a little confused about why we were saying almshouse. This created something of a double bind for reformers. Historian Susan Porter sums up the dilemma this way, quote, Middle class and elite policymakers had a bifurcated social vision. Children belonged in good families, but poor families were by definition defective, even when their heads were, quote unquote, deserving men and women whose suffering was brought on by tragedy rather than incapacity or deviant behavior. Right. So um, children needed to be in good families. Their own families weren't you know, by definition, weren't good, right? Even when their circumstances were, you know, tragic or something like that, right? Like they still couldn't be with those families. It couldn't be with their families of origin. But at the same time, the institution, the poorhouse, the orphanage, whatever it is, as much as it can replicate a family, still isn't a family. So they have this kind of problem of like, okay, we're going to take them out of their families and bring them into the institution, but children also need to be in families in order to be raised a- a- as best they can, right? And to get all the social and moral training uh, and work training and all these different things that kids are supposed to have. And so they have to find a way to kind of both remove children and institutionalize them and get them into families, if that makes sense. Right. Basically, neither of the first two solutions are are the best solution. And there needs right. to be a kind of third middle middle way. Exactly. Yeah. Right. A way of, of getting them into families, but not bad families. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So the solution then was indenture, which could provide a combination of the two. Children would be raised to a certain age in the institution. And now it it sort of differed um, from institution to institution, but usually, you know, they would be raised um, to somewhere between eight or and 14 years old. Um, while they were in the in the institution up until this age, they would receive some kind of education and stability. Right. And then once they got to that certain age, then they would be indentured out to get the real life moralizing experience of living and working with a family. And the children that ended up in almshouses and orphanages really could use that kind of structure. In their study of 18th century indentures, John Murray and Ruth Wallace Herndon found that children 
the children came from a variety of difficult, impoverished, and troubled backgrounds, you know, born out of wedlock, orphaned, abandoned by their parents, typically without any kind of kin. Race was also a factor for admission to poorhouses. In Rhode Island contracts between 1750 and 1790, the explanations for a child's indenture was most often listed as either poor or of color, essentially equating blackness with poverty. Indenture was similar to auctioning, except instead of simply auctioning off the poor to someone to provide them with a roof over their head, the idea was that it was an opportunity to provide the child with a family setting and work training. Indenture had existed for a long time. You're all probably very familiar with the indentured servitude of the colonial era, where a laborer would contract with a landowner to work for a set number of years, usually seven, in exchange for their passage across the Atlantic from Europe to the Americas. After concluding their contracted years, the servant was released and typically given what were called freedom dues, things like clothing or tools that they would need to begin their lives as free people. Another similar colonial era practice was apprenticeship, where a young person, typically a boy, would work for an artisan for a period of years, simultaneously learning the trade and providing much-needed labor for the artisan. Johnny Tremaine, baby! I don't know who that is. (laughs) I don't think I know who that is. What? See... I put this in when I thought I was recording this with Avril, and I oh. thought she is not going to have any idea who Johnny Tremaine Sorry. is. And I am like so upset that you don't. Johnny Tremaine is one of those books that, like, I don't know if it's still assigned, but like when um, it, it was like a very commonly assigned book at like the seventh or eighth grade level. It's about a, a little boy. Well, I mean, he's not that little. He's like 12 or 13, probably, um, who is apprenticed to Paul Revere, I want to say, to some silversmith. I want to say it's it may be <laughs> Paul Revere. It might not be. I don't know. Maybe I'm just making that up. Um, in Boston and like this whole thing, he like um he like pours like liquid silver on his hand and it burns the shit out of his hand and his hand like heals in this really weird way so it's like heals like this and then he meets uh, whoever that famous doctor, it's like Warren, Dr. Warren or something from Boston no. who was like a revolutionary. <laughs> Do you know what I'm talking about at all? Like fixes his hand and he like joins the revolution and it's like Boston in 1775 or something. And it's like, oh, times are changing. Things are exciting for Johnny Tremaine, silversmithing, patriotism. Yeah. Oh, that's funny. Yeah, I'm not familiar. Although, to be fair, I know very little about that's Boston weird. specifically because all of my America stuff was so See, Philadelphia. See, I don't care based. about Philadelphia at all. <laughs> yeah, I don't care about Boston at all. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, I'm not a scholar of Boston. I just was really... No, I know. I was, the, I I was a nerdy history kid who, in eighth grade English, we got to read this book and I was like, this is my shit, I just, man. I wasn't... I. I wasn't into American history until more recently. So that's part of it, mm. too. I always, like, cared more about medieval Europe and and the Tudors and stuff like that. Mm. <laughs> Such a dork. <laughs> oh, I'm the dork? <laughs> <laughs> I was so obsessed with Johnny Tremaine. I think I had, like, five copies of it at one point. <laughs> now I want to <laughs> like, read it. <laughs> it. I mean, it's probably not great. You know, I was... <laughs> Yes, probably. I was like 
13 years old when I read it and I was like super into it. Okay. Um, yeah. What are we talking about? Oh, yeah. Okay. Indentures. Pauper indentures, um, sometimes also called pauper apprenticeships. So this gets kind of confusing because it's different than a traditional apprenticeship, right? But it's sometimes called a pauper in- apprenticeship. Um, could be similar to those earlier systems, right? Of like indentured servitude and apprenticeship, depending again on the contracting institution. The indentured child would serve in exchange for craft training, and their contract could also include freedom dues, like tools, clothing, livestock, or cash. In the 18th century, indentured children were often given one or two new suits of clothes, while Crystal Webster found that during the 19th century, black children in northern cities were sometimes provided with small cash payments. I mean, very small. But the experience of any given indentured child lay totally in the hands of their master. They could be treated like a member of the family, or they could be treated essentially like a servant or even a slave. According to historians John Murray and Ruth Wallace Herndon, quote, youths not promised skills training became mere servants for their entire minority and ended their time prepared only for a long life of still more manual labor. Indenture first became a common approach to institutionalized children in the 18th century. In Boston, the overseers of the poor required that those seeking indentured children provide references from town elders. They also required that masters provide at least some level of education to indentured children. Boston records show that nearly all indentured boys were promised education in reading and math. As this number suggests, work arrangements and educational requirements were vastly different for boys and girls. Boys were most often promised labor that also trained them in a trade for which reading and writing would be important skills. Girls, on the other hand, were given places as household domestics with the idea that they would most likely someday become housewives themselves. This was less common in the South, as suggested by Murray and Herndon's study of indenture contracts from Charleston, South Carolina. Only 25% of boys and 6% of girls had education included in their contracts. Freedom dues also played an interesting role in how contracts worked in their local economies. Children, of course, had no role in negotiating their contracts and couldn't really understand them even if they wanted to. Instead, they were at the whims of the institutions, the overseers of the poor and their masters. Freedom dues, while they could be super useful for a young person aging out of the system and heading out on their own, also had economic functions that extended beyond the individual child. They helped to ensure that as the child worked for their master and grew up, they would have less incentive to run away. They could only access their dues if they fulfilled their contract. At the same time, this was usually a really good deal for both the master and the overseers of the poor. Masters got years of round-the-clock work from the indentured child, and the overseers of the poor unloaded the financial responsibility of their day-to-day care. Murray and Herndon sum it up as only economic historians could. <laughs> Quote, Sounds boring. Yes, this, was, this article was <laughs> packed with information, also very difficult for uh, me to get through. <laughs> Quote, even if a child who was not to be trained or educated earned more than the value of his or her maintenance, the overseer had no incentive to force a master to pay that rent to the child. The overseer's job was to minimize expenditures on poor relief, and the master's concern was to discourage running away. 
Together, they dominated the child's interest in structuring compensation for his or her labor, end quote. While it was common for adult paupers to be foisted on any relative they may have rather than admitted to the poorhouse on the public's dime, children were a very different story. Children could be admitted as half-orphans, meaning that one of their parents had died, making it difficult or impossible for the living parent to adequately care for and provide for the child. Rather than trying to reunite families, many institutions run by middle-class reformers who believed that impoverished families were bad influences, limited visitation between children and their relatives, and sometimes even refused to return children to their parents or relatives. Indenture was understood as preferable to reuniting blood family members, especially when the child could be placed with respectable and well-off local muckety-mucks. Fancy peoples. Not even fancy, but just respectable, yeah. Yeah, like respectable people. Yeah, yeah. In 1802, a woman named Hannah Smith requested to take a child named Betsy Durrell out of the Boston Female Asylum sooner than institution policies usually allowed. The board of managers, no doubt influenced by the fact that Mrs. Smith had donated an enormous amount of money to the asylum's building fund, voted, quote, that Mrs. Smith should be permitted to take Betsy Durrell as soon as she wishes, end quote. Wealthy women, assumed to be moral influences, were even favored over the children's own family members. When Mary Barron's mother returned, Mary Barron's name of my great-grandmother. What? When, yeah. Weird. Um, Mary Barron's mother returned to the Boston Female Asylum to retrieve her daughter a year after she admitted her, hoping to get her daughter back when she reached the age of indenture. The managers weighed this request against a request from Mrs. Susanna Nye Freeman, who applied to indenture Mary. The managers took Mary's mother's hope to be reunited seriously. Quote, the claim of parental feelings obtained its due influence in the decision, which was operated with the utmost tenderness, candor, and resolution. End quote. But in the end, they still placed young Mary with the respectable Mrs. Freeman. But being indentured to a well-placed member of society didn't always mean that a child had a good experience. The Boston Female Asylum struggled with Mrs. Elizabeth Sumner, the wife of the former governor of Massachusetts, Increase Sumner. We don't name enough people Increase anymore. Or Cotton. Cotton, yeah. Th- increase those Mather, Cotton Mather. Should, they should make a comeback, I think. Uh, <laughs> Mrs. Sumner had taken Hannah Fovell in an indenture in 1803. But three years later, Mrs. Sumner came back to the BFA and wanted to return the troublesome child. The asylum reminded her that even the wife of the former governor couldn't just break an indenture contract and return a child to the asylum. So instead, Mrs. Sumner just shunted the girl off to another woman named Mrs. Shellback, who treated Hannah with great cruelty. Hannah ran away and lived with another kinder family called the Caswells, but Mrs. Shellback demanded the girl back. Following the rules set by the asylum and honoring the girl's contract, the Caswells sadly surrendered her, only to have Hannah escape again. The Boston Female Asylum was forced to revisit this indenture to try to find a solution that would keep Hannah safe and in a position of indenture. Finally, they determined that the best solution was to return Hannah to the Caswells. Later, a manager noted in her case file that after she was reunited with this kind family, Hannah became a good and useful girl. Oh, that's a nice story. I like that. 
And a reminder that, you know, even though this system is so foreign to us and so exploitative and seeming and, and unkind in many ways, I think a lot of times the overseers of the poor were genuinely wanting right. the best outcome. Try, trying yeah. to find solutions to these problems. Right, right? exactly. And, and that's that's was my experience in the much of the reading that I did is that, like, I think it's easy to picture this as cruel overseers of the poor just kind of, like, shoving children out the door to anybody who will take them. But there were efforts in place to try to make sure that kids had good experiences. Just like today in the foster system, like the intentions are good. The outcomes aren't always good, right? Mm-hmm. But the the, yeah. the people who are, the social workers who are trying to make this work are are most often doing the best that they can with an overwhelming and, and kind of, broken system right right you're making me want to rethink my dissertation. oh <laughs> um because i do not make that argument but i'm not just saying that this one piece of evidence has changed my mind i you know I, i'm not saying that but just it's my presence no but it's just a good reminder that right that it's that there was that you have to take the the genuine desire to do good seriously and you can't be super right. cynical about it all the time, you know. Sure. Yeah, exactly. Um placements with moral upstanding members of society according to reformers theories of child welfare should have meant good lives and good outcomes for orphan children. But that obviously wasn't always true. Maybe there were cases where children would be better off placed back with their families. In 1822, the BFA sent Margaret Cuddy back to live with her father, William, who had previously surrendered the girl. Since leaving Margaret at the asylum, William had remarried and had, by industry and frugality, obtained the means of establishing a home for their family. The BFA was impressed by William Cuddy's improvement and ultimately determined that he was worthy of raising his own child again, saying, quote, these children, meaning Margaret and her siblings, have been preserved from want and vice and will be restored, prepared to be a comfort and assistance to a father who will, it is believed, discharge with faithfulness his parental duty toward them, end quote. Uh, child indenture was complicated by enslavement. Even during the first few decades of the 19th century, slavery was legal in most northern as well as all southern states. Murray and Herndon's statistical analysis shows far more white than black children indentured in Boston, Rhode Island, and South Carolina. One factor, of course, might be population. There were certainly more white people in the colonies, especially in Boston and in Rhode Island, than there were black people uh, during the 18th century anyway. But more importantly... I think we need to remember that orphaned black children weren't typically at the mercy of the poorhouse or the orphanage during the 18th century. They were at the mercies of the peculiar institution of slavery. This is actually something that Murray and Herndon didn't mention in the article that I consulted, which I found a little strange. Um, Now, that wasn't really the focus of their study, so maybe they just considered it outside of their scope. Um, But I think it's important context to understand that all of these places, Massachusetts, Rhode Island, and South Carolina, all had legal systems of slavery during the 1700s. South Carolina, which had the smallest number of indentured black children, would also have had the smallest population of free blacks, whereas Rhode Island, where one quarter of the indentured children during the 18th century were black, would have had a much larger free black population. 
It's complicated, too, because many northern states have, I think most northern states, have abolished slavery gradually, um, which I, I think we mentioned, we'll talk a tiny bit more about. But like, so what that meant is like weird generations where parents were enslaved and children were free. Um, and so that sometimes meant that the parent would uh, would basically give yeah. up the child to the institution because they, for whatever reason, master didn't want them to keep it, you know, whatever. Like, or mm-hmm. the alternate that children were raised essentially as if they were enslaved when they were technically legally free, right? So it's it's it, it's kind of messy. In Philadelphia, just like this is totally this is directly related. In Philadelphia, they hated when they had um, black and mulatto children. Not, be- I mean, they were racist, but not because of the racism. <laughs> they hated it because they tended to sue the father or the mother um, for if they had a surviving parent, right, uh, or a surviving family member. They would kind of sue them for child support, mm. and if the parents. Even just if if the father was unknown and the mother was enslaved or if both of them were unknown and one was dead or whatever, it it made it complicated. Right. They couldn't sue. You can't sue a slave. Right. Um, So they couldn't. So they couldn't couldn't recoup recoup. any of those fees. Right. So they were always super pissed. And then they were like, well, let's just sue the masters then. And of course, the masters were like freaking out. Like, no, you can't do that. Right, right. Um, And... So it was it was like a whole thing. And so you see a lot of poor relief being like, oh, there's so many black kids here. And it's yeah. because of that particular um, problem. Right. But yeah. so it's it, it's they are happening at the same time, mm-hmm. you know, and they're related to each other because obviously those kids in um, slave societies in South Carolina or whatever you know, there's fewest, there's fewer kid, black kids in under indentures because the rest are enslaved. You know, like. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And and I mean, again, I don't have extensive knowledge of this or or, you know, have not done deep research into this, but it would not surprise me if, you know, the children, let's say a, a free black family, the children are orphaned. What what makes more sense to a you know, white overseer of the poor or whatever, or whoever becomes responsible for those children, you know, does it make more sense to put those kids into an almshouse at the public charge, or does it make more sense to right. sell yeah. those black children back into slavery? You know what I mean? Even if their parents right. were free, now they're orphaned. It doesn't matter, right? Right? Yeah. Like they have no obligation to keep them free in in a state like South Carolina. So if they and if they were children who were still breastfeeding. Then they had to try to find a wet nurse for them, mm-hmm. and that was really hard. And so I would imagine that they would find, right? And who's the wet nurse going to be? Right, right, an enslaved, an enslaved wet nurse. Yeah. Right, that's what I'm saying. Right. Like they would have had to, right? And so then it, they'd be raised by an enslaved wet nurse and probably just be de facto slaves. Right, right? exactly. Yeah. yeah. So mm-hmm. all of this to say that that this is this was not something that this article that I read by these two economic historians considered. Um, but obviously, as as we kind of have have explored here, just in our conversation, is this really race plays a big role in this, um, and in and slavery complicates it, right? Like mm-hmm. it's just it 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 seems to me like a, a major part of this story that um, uh, needs a lot more um, mm-hmm. exploration. Yeah, so, just read my dissertation, guys. Yeah, 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 exactly. Or my book project, it's called now. Um, <laughs> 
Okay, sorry. I'll stop talking and keep going. When northern states began to abolish slavery, many black children saw no real difference in their day-to-day lives because they were shunted immediately into indenture. When many states like New York abolished slavery, they often included clauses that kept children and teenagers enslaved until adulthood, living under the same conditions. Abolition could also tear families apart as easily as enslavement did. In 1828, an enslaved woman named Lucinda Ricks, newly released from bondage and likely struggling to make ends meet, had no choice but to leave her three sons at the shelter for colored orphans in Philadelphia. While she was reunited with her son, Henry, after about a year, his brothers Stephen and Simon died without rejoining the family. And it's my suspicion that something akin to this happened to Levi um, in New York State. I think his mother was, I'm not sure whether his mother was born free or enslaved, um, because he would have been born in the, I think, 1850s. So there's a possibility, well, I guess maybe she would have been a generation out of slavery. Um, But again, the generations in these free states that are gradually emancipating slavery become complicated because people could be held on to until like their 18th or 20th or 25th birthday. Um, so there's some, right. But wasn't that technically under indentures? Like they weren't technically slaves. They had to be indentured until their adulthood if their parents were slaves. Yes. And no, it depends on, uh, on where, how old you were at the times that those gradual emancipation laws were passed. Right. I mean, I, I would say to listeners, go back and listen to our episode on, um, slavery and freedom in New York state, um, where we get into like the actual details of how, at least just in New York State, how those gradual emancipation laws worked. But like, you know, if you were enslaved on this, well, I can't remember the details of this, but like if you were if you were enslaved on such and such date, you would have to continue in your current condition until you, uh, it was like, I want to say 18th or 25th birthday. It was like 18 for women, 25 for men, something like that. And then you would be freed. So, like, there were some children who continued to be slaves after slavery was technically legally abolished, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So it continues for a long time. But then, yes, as you're pointing out earlier, I think that we said that children and teenagers continued to be enslaved until adulthood. Um, I, I think what we meant to say that it would kind of keep them working as indentured servants, I think is the phrasing that they used under those. So, so living essentially exactly the same way that they had before, Mm -hmm. but technically free. Yeah. Like their legal status was technically free. Yeah. It was a way of essentially appeasing white masters, Mm -hmm. right? right? Getting the most labor that they could out of people before they were forced to free them. So that was all very complicated. I apologize. I just realized that I did a an AHA panel with Crystal Lynn Webster. I was like, that name the name familiar. sounded really familiar to yeah. me. So I, it was me I was and um, Cassie Berman and Nora Doyle oh, and Crystal okay. Webster. Interesting. Okay. Um. All right. Once he left the orphanage, this this young man that we were just talking about, Henry, um, he had to work, but his labor went to support himself and his mother and helped keep the family solvent. Had Henry stayed in the orphanage in Philadelphia much longer, he would likely have not been reunited with his mother at all, nor would his labor have been his own. 
he was eight. And in Philadelphia, once children turned eight years old, they were indentured out. In some cases, white slave owners in northern states actually exploited this indenture system. As historian Crystal Lynn Webster writes, quote, evidence indicates that some slaveholders sold child slaves into systems of indentured servitude in Pennsylvania in place of emancipating them so they could rid themselves of a moral association of slavery while still profiting economically. Black indentured children were treated more or less as if they were enslaved. Just as enslaved people, and indeed apprentices, indentured children tried to advocate for themselves by running away from arrangements they didn't like. When an indentured child fled, they were pursued just like a runaway slave. Runaway ads read exactly like runaway slave ads with a fixation on color and appearance. One ad published in 1802 by a man named Frederick Baker seeking his indentured, quote, Negro wench, a 16-year-old girl named Hannah, read like this. She was, quote, stout and well-made about the shoulders, small around her waist. She's right black, of a smooth skin, big eyes, and when she looks at one, turns out the white of her eyes very much. Had no clothes on or with her, but a shift and a low linsey petticoat of a bark color, a copperous colored handkerchief, end quote. And indentured people understood the similarities between enslavement and indenture. In 1810, a young Rhode Island woman ran from her indenture to the anti-slavery activist Moses Brown, claiming that she could be free based on Rhode Island's 1784 gradual abolition laws. Brown agreed, pointing out that she had been held longer as an indentured servant than she would have been in slavery, which stated that women could only be held up to age 18. But that wasn't always the case. At the Philadelphia Home for Destitute Children, orphans would only be considered the responsibility of the institution until age 18, with the exception of black girls who could be kept in indentures as servants and domestics after technically aging out. As the century wore on, child welfare reformers began to see adoption rather than indenture as the ideal solution for orphaned or indentured children. Changing ideas about childhood played a significant role. Mid-19th century Americans revered the middle-class home and family, and children transformed from additional, albeit smaller, laborers within the household into cherished, quote-unquote, emotional commodities, to borrow historian Susan Porter's phrase. I loved that, emotional commodities. Slowly but surely, reformers began to see indenture as harmful rather than beneficial for children. Social worker Homer Folks decried a system in which poor children's childhoods were stolen. Quote, any plan which compels or allows these children to work when the others are at play or in school is a disgrace to the people of any state. End quote. Indenture wasn't about what was best for the child, anymore, but about the labor needs of folks seeking out indentured kids. William Pryor Letchworth, the wealthy businessman and philanthropist and uh, creator, donator of Letchworth State Park, which is not super far from uh, Western New York. Um, I should say not not super far from where we are in Western New York. Um, where you are. Where I am. <laughs> you are not in Western New York. You're killing my... There was supposed to be a little quip about Letchworth State Park and you killed it. Okay. 
William Pryor Letchworth, the wealthy businessman and philanthropist, noted in his 1874 report on childhood poverty, quote, it is important that the person taking the child should feel an interest in it beyond a purely selfish one, end quote. But reformers had to work to get Americans to think about taking in a needy child as something that could be done for the benefit of the child rather than for themselves. Another social worker, Hastings Hart, explained to colleagues, quote, we have a constant missionary work to do to lead people to realize that they are not to take children for their own selfish gratification, end quote. The Children's Home Society, a child welfare organization, suggested to readers of their publication to think differently about taking in an orphan, asking them to think of it not in terms of, quote, what you can get out of him, but rather what you can put into him, <laughs> which can you put is kind of him? a creepy thing to say. <laughs> I mean, I get what they were going for, but it's like, OK, like, don't put things into children. Um Families could get so much more than just a servant, this publication promised. They said, quote, when you receive a baby to raise, uh, you add to your possessions heaven's sweetest benediction. Sociologist Vivian Zelizer has called this switch um, to an economically worthless but emotionally priceless child. In the final years of the 19th century and early decades of the 20th, during the period we call the Progressive Era, child welfare reformers jettisoned indenture entirely, instead focusing on finding ways to place children with families who would value their priceless nature, ideally through adoption. The culture of child welfare had changed so radically during the first half of the 20th century, hopeful couples were playing were paying exorbitant fees to try to adopt a child, with major premiums for blonde-haired, blue-eyed girls. In 1909, the New York Times recommended to babies that, quote, every baby who expects to be adopted ought to make it a point to be born with blue eyes. The brown-eyed, black-eyed, or gray-eyed girl <laughs> or boy may be just as pretty, but it is hard to make benevolent auxiliaries of the stork to believe so, end quote. <laughs> I, I love that <laughs> they ought to make it a point to be born with blue eyes <laughs> right you guys better try to get here with blue eyes in 1907 a child welfare organization noted that quote a two-year-old blue-eyed golden-haired little girl with curls that is the order that everybody leaves it cannot be filled fast enough end quote Decades earlier, when orphans were understood by potential caregivers as a form of supplemental labor, the premium had been on able-bodied teenage boys. But now, with sentiment taking precedence, cute and moldable babies were the most desirable. So no, Levi wasn't enslaved in New York State in 1870. But he also wasn't really free. Levi's experience was sadly similar to the experiences of orphaned, abandoned, and poor children who were institutionalized and indentured out in the United States during the 18th and 19th centuries. Man, that's good. Was it okay? Yeah. Okay, and it's good. like, I, for a minute, I was scared that you were slowly undoing my dissertation. But, yeah. <laughs> How could I possibly do that? <laughs> Well, because, I mean, I make the argument that the people, the they're called guardians of the poor right. half the time, too, that the overseers of the poor and guardians of the poor um, 
that they were essentially like well-meaning like social workers and stuff although oftentimes they were like middle class socially mobile people Mm -hmm. um but then the people who created like founding hospitals and things like that and also who served on the board and served as trustees to almshouses they Mm -hmm. were generally middle class people and they took advantage of their reforming and charitable roles to staff their houses so Mm, when a woman would come and she had a child out of wedlock they'd be like instead of prioritizing keeping the mother and baby together they would say let's voice this baby off on someone else and you can come to my house and be a wet nurse for Uh, me because wet nurses were hard to find right yeah and you definitely see that in um in the chapter that was written by Susan Porter that's in a it comes from a book on adoption um different perspectives on adoption in in the 19th century I think it's just the 19th century maybe I'm wrong um but where she gets really deep into the archives of the Boston Female Asylum and looking at how so often it's the it's people who are involved in the running or the fundraising or whatever, the philanthropy around the Boston Female Asylum who are taking these kids back out as indentures, right? Because Mm -hmm. they're using them um, as domestic labor. Right. You know? Yep. Um, So I thought that was really interesting. Yeah. No, that's – I'm familiar with Susan Porter, but I don't know if I have read that particular book. I think I've just read articles. Yeah, this was it was a chapter in like an edited volume um, on adoption that I mean, this is all um, this all gets really complex because of sort of the way that sentiment comes in and changes things like it would be really interesting to get Elizabeth's perspective on this because the book manuscript that she's literally like finishing at this moment um, deals so much with reform-minded women and how sentiment played into how they advocated for reforms for children, right? Mm -hmm. And so, like, that becomes a big part of it late in the 19th century. um, There is, like, the... um, Oh, gosh, what was the other thing I was going to say that plays a a big role? Oh, another thing is, like, just the, the progressive era, right? And like the professionalization of social work plays mm-hmm. a huge role in this. And there's like there's all of these different sort of avenues that you could go down. That one of the things that I actually struggled with in this episode was trying to sort of get at the more sort of granular local experience of people like Levi. Mm-hmm. Right? It's like it's yeah. it's like investigated through all of these different lenses. And what was hard to get at was sort of the on-the-ground experiences of these kids, probably mm-hmm. for obvious reasons that what sources would you use? Yeah, they right? didn't leave anything behind. Yeah. yeah. So as I'm as I'm starting to do a little bit of research on this, on, on Levi, it's challenging because sources are, uh, you know, he didn't leave a diary, right? <laughs> like, mm-hmm. um, he's a, like a disabled black kid. Yeah. Um, totally at the whims of the people around him. So it's super um, hard to yeah. to get at the lived experience of yeah. children. Yeah. And that's and it's yeah. What I was hoping to be able to do is sort of contextualize uh, to be able to say, like, here are examples of of other people in similar positions to Levi. This is what their experiences were like. And that is actually I found the hardest thing to find. Mm-hmm. Like I can find all of these different things about 
the you know what the policies were in Philadelphia, like what social workers were saying, adoption advocates, like all of these different things about the changing nature of childhood. And I'm like, oh, yes, this is all good. I want you to tell me exactly what it was like to be an indentured <laughs> child, right. right? Well, there are so there I know of some manuscript records at least for the 18th century that show that and it was basically Mm -hmm. like when the trustees or the board members um philadelphia almshouse had had both and whenever they would meet they would discuss issues that popped up so Mm, they would have and it's the same in london too there was um a former foundling um who she had been at the foundling hospital and then she went out for her indentures when she was like six or seven or something and she mm-hmm. was indentured out to a man and he actually impregnated her and killed her Ugh. when she was a teenager oh my god her name was elizabeth rainbow which i love oh yeah but it was super sad so and they the 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 foundling hospital board members got together and talked about this and they were actually the ones who discovered the murder because oh. friends friends of hers had been like you know, our neighbor's servant, you know, uh-huh. our servants are worried because our neighbor's servant has gone missing or whatever. And so we heard she used to be a foundling here and they would tell her. So they were like involved in her life after she left the founding hospital and they would talk. Right. You know, they, they would do investigations. So a lot of these boards, they would do investigations with, for people. So that's kind of where you find out specific cases. But obviously you only find out details about the everyday lives of the people who come to people's notice for some reason. Like, right. you know, they're usually, you know... There's something not... exemplary or like right. something <laughs> exceptional, I should say, about yes. that case. Right. Yeah, that catches exactly. their attention. Yeah. So that's still not even getting at the lived experience of, like, sure. ordinary people. But it's right. at least something. Yeah. So... Well, I'm glad that we were paired up on this one because your perspective on this was good. And... It um, made me feel more like I um, didn't get it all wrong. No, no. I mean, you totally know. I was like, oh, God, what if Marissa tears me apart? This all started in the 18th century. (laughs) Nothing. I mean, it did, but you you said that it did. So, you know. Um, No, everything you said uh, matches up perfectly with my understanding. I say is correct. Yes. Yes. You know what you're doing, Sarah. Sort of. All right. Um, what what do we say? Uh, well, I'm sorry. I should say this. I am sorry if I have lots of background noise because there's a hurricane happening outside oh. of my office while this is happening. So I am a little scared because that the wind and rain, you'll be able to hear it. But we'll we'll see. I'm glad that that is what you're scared of and not like you have to drive home in a hurricane. <laughs> oh, well, yeah, I have to do that, too. But I yeah. have my nice big minivan now, so I'm not scared. Oh, right. Right. Nice. <laughs> Well, if this episode was um, useful to you, if you want to use it with your students, you can find transcripts um, and a full bibliography and all citations on the website. We always want to make super, super clear that all of our episodes are like really um, heavily reliant on the work of other scholars. Um, And so we make um, all of that information clear on our website, in the transcript, there will be hyperlinks, footnotes, and, and bibliography, um, so you can check our sources if if you want to do that. Um, we also, if you're a teacher, we have um, uh, teacher resources on our website, lesson plans, all sorts of different ways of using our episodes in the classroom or ways of creating sort of 
podcasts and lessons of your own. Um, all of that at digpodcast.org. You can find us, uh, for the moment anyway, on Twitter. Um, we'll see what Elon Musk does to us. But uh, right now we are still on Twitter <laughs> at dig underscore history. Uh, we do not yet have a Mastodon account, largely because I have no fucking clue how to use Mastodon, but I am slowly figuring it out. Um, it's you like can find TikTok. Us on- like, we need it's, to get it together, and we need to We need to, to get on. a TikTok together, too. Yeah. But, like, man, I don't know. I don't know about this video-based stuff. I don't want you to be looking at me all the time. Um, you can find us on all of the old people's social medias, like Instagram and Facebook. <laughs> um, what else, Marissa? Um, and you know, we also have merch. We also have a Facebook group, the Dig History Pod Squad. Oh, right. Yep. Um, if you're interested, if you're on Facebook, uh, and yeah, that's about it. I think. All right. Thanks for listening. Oh, 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 I was just going to say, if you listen and you enjoy what you're hearing, we always do, of course, appreciate hearing from you. So you can leave comments on the on the website. You can email us at hello at digpodcast.org. Um, and please um, consider leaving us a rating and review on Rate, whatever review, podcast subscribe. you Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that makes a big difference. It helps other people find the show. And it makes Marissa really happy when she compulsively checks our reviews <laughs> on Apple Podcasts. Yeah, so. I'm the only one. Yeah. Um, I so do, do us I a do. favor and give us that little boost in our day. Okay, bye, guys. Bye. And then did he, like, kill them or something? No. <laughs> no, I'm just... <laughs> he was normal. Least, according to this book, who knows what happened afterwards. <laughs> No doubt influenced by the fact. Wait, you said the board of the managers. Oh. <laughs> I don't know. That's okay. That doesn't seem wrong to me, but I understand it, that it's, it's not, not what you wrote. It's, it's, not, it's not what you wrote. Um, the, what was going on in Daniel has on, going on on. Okay. And wanted to return the trumble trumble. <laughs> and wanted to return the troublesome child. But now, with sentiment lacking precedence, nope, take cute... <laughs> sentiment. Why can't I read? <laughs> Over those who used their service... Oh, my God. Beyond's house in Salem, Massachusetts, for instance... Sorry, I'm getting very spitty. <laughs> A child named Betsy Durrell requested to take... <laughs> <laughs> And ultimately determined that she was worthy of raising his own. Wait. Oh, I was like, wait a minute. Okay. Outdoor relief to such as have. That's not a typo. Have you heard about the 2018 study that showed half of prenatal vitamins tested had unacceptable levels of heavy metals? No? Well, now you have. I'm Kat, mother of three and founder of Ritual the company making traceability the new standard in the supplement industry. I remember staring at my prenatal vitamins and finding all these things I was trying to avoid. High amounts of heavy metals, synthetic colorants, and unnecessary ingredients. So, at four months pregnant, I quit my job and started Ritual, because I believe that all women deserve to know what they're putting in their bodies and why. I'm so proud of our prenatal vitamin. The ingredients are 100% traceable, It's third-party tested for microbes and heavy metals and recently received the Purity Award from the Clean Label Project. You see, we trace like a mother because, let's be honest, no one cares quite like a mother. But don't just take my word for it. Trace for yourself with 25% off at virtual.com slash podcast.